the perspective in that song until then of God's eternal purpose, God's spiritual purpose. We'll be speaking on that this evening from John 6. We're looking at the first 29 verses. The first advent of Jesus Christ was one of deep spiritual purpose. As we have learned time and again throughout this series in John, Jesus Christ came to give himself as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind through his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But we humans, as I believe just about everyone in this room should know quite well, we humans don't do a good job of accepting things without visible, tangible evidence. Faith, which we can define in many ways, I like this definition, resting in the authority and truth of another without the corroboration of physical proofs. This idea of faith comes very hard to humans. God knew this, and God sent His Son working great physical miracles as a gracious addition to the truths that He had preached through the Word of God, in the, as a gracious addition to His spiritual purpose, in order that man might have an easier time believing in God's Word by believing in God's works. But that does not change the fact that Christ's purpose, though He came performing many physical miracles, His purpose was absolutely spiritual in its intent. Nor does it change the fact that a man who comes to God must do so by faith, in spite or even in the midst of the great works that he recognizes Jesus Christ to have done. And so this evening from John 6 verses 1 through 29, we're going to understand the spiritual purpose of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And we're also going to understand man's responsibility in light of Christ's spiritual purpose. I'm going to read the scriptures. We'll read the entire passage this evening, but we'll read it in sections within our uh, individual points. The first point that we'll see in our understanding of Christ's spiritual purpose, Jesus Christ's spiritual purpose, is this, that Jesus Christ's earthly miracles were a physical manifestation of a spiritual purpose. His earthly miracles were a physical manifestation of his spiritual purpose. And we see this in verses 1 through 15. Look at them with me. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the, si the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread, that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of fishes as much as they would. 
when they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. We pick up the historical narrative with Jesus Christ again in Galilee. It is specified here by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The writer is speaking concerning the sea, which the reader would have better recognized as the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this again gives us insight, as we've seen numerous times in the book of John. It gives us insight into the intended audience of the writer. If he had been writing to a Jewish audience, he would have called it the Sea of Galilee, and he wouldn't have had any need to explain himself. But he calls it the Sea of Galilee here, and then he specifies in verse 1, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This also reminds us that the Sea of Galilee is mentioned many other ways in Scripture. In the Old Testament, its name is the Sea of Chinnereth, or Chinneroth. In the New Testament, it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Sea of Tiberias. And it's also called the Lake of Gennesaret. Now, the question stands to reckon. Why? Why would they call it by so many different names in the scriptures? Well, we've already seen one reason. Because depending on who they were talking to, they recognized it as a different name. Tiberius was a Roman leader. There was a city by the sea that was named Tiberius in his honor by those, particularly Herod, by Herod as he built that city. And so the Romans would have known this as the Sea of Tiberias because of this great city, Tiberias, that was built in honor of Emperor Tiberius. The Jews would have known it as the Sea of Galilee because Galilee was the region in which it rested. The sea of the lake of Gennesaret would have been mentioned in regard to another city in the area called Gennesaret. And the reason why various people use various names for this particular sea is because familiarity is more important than a proper name in identification. If I were to tell you that Lake Pulaski looks beautiful this time of year, you may or you may not know what lake I'm talking about. Mr. Troy's lived in Buffalo a long time. He's plenty familiar with Lake Pulaski. He knows where Lake Pulaski is, and he knows that which lake it is. He, he's got a frame of reference. Perhaps Dee, having not lived here for very long, or the Grismores, having uh, lived quite some distance from Buffalo, uh, might not be as familiar with the area. However, if I told you Pastor Wickler's lake looks particularly beautiful at this time of year, Well, everyone in this room now knows the lake that I am talking about. You all know that the lake that is by the house that my wife and I live in is the lake that I'm referencing. Whether you knew that it was Lake Pulaski or not, you know that Pastor Wickler's lake is the lake that we're talking about. That's what's happening here in scriptures. The official name for the sea or lake, we don't really know, in fact, which one was official. We call it the Sea of Galilee today. That's what it is officially called in Israel today. But various times throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the scriptures, the lake was designated in a way that would have been familiar, that would have been a a designation 
um, of familiarity more than it would have been a designation of a proper name. And so that's why we see various titles for various cities, various lakes, various areas in the scriptures. Now we also learn from the beginning of this passage that a great multitude was following Jesus. Verse 11 tells us 5,000 men were following. We assume that that was just men proper, not women and children, um, from the particular Greek word used there, which is the actual word for men. And we learn of their reason in doing so in verse 2. A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. So they were following him because they saw the miracles. We know where he is. He's by the Sea of Galilee. We know why this multitude is following him because they have the miracles, because of the diseases that were being healed. Finally, we learn, as far as the setting goes in verse 4, that the Passover was nigh. Now, the last Passover that we explicitly came across in the book of John was found in John 2. I mentioned to you as we came about in John 5, uh, which is, was the healing of the impotent man. Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast at that time. I mentioned that some have tried to put that feast as another Passover feast. It's possible, but in my study it would not seem probable. Since it was near Passover at this time, if this was in fact the second Passover of Jesus Christ's ministry, then we're talking about late March to early April, anywhere from one year to one and a half years after Christ's earthly ministry began. Now this perspective is very helpful to us. Don't allow these things to just blow over you when you're reading the scriptures. The Passover was nigh. You've read about the Passover already. All right, let's just move on. I've got other things to do. Let's continue as we read. Don't let yourself do that. Stop and consider the implications of the fact that this would have been the second Passover in Jesus' ministry. In John 4, we recall Jesus was going up to Galilee after his first Passover. You remember John 3 was Nicodemus. Nicodemus came while Jesus Christ was still in Jerusalem, questioned him. John 4 comes around and Jesus is leaving because of the questioning of the Pharisees of John the Baptist. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes up and he says, I must needs pass through Samaria. And so he goes through Samaria, he speaks to the Samaritan woman, and then he ends up in Galilee. He goes to Cana of Galilee. There we have a man from Capernaum, a nobleman whose son is dying. He meets him in Capernaum. We remember that from a couple of weeks ago. Now in John 5, if we assume that Jesus is attending a different feast in Jerusalem than the Passover feast, then these events are at least five months, perhaps as many as ten months later than the events of John 5. If John 5 was the Feast of Tabernacles, then it would have been about five months earlier. If John 5 was the Feast of Pentecost, then it would have been about ten months earlier than the events here in John 6. The people of Galilee have become very familiar. This is, this is the conclusion of all of that mental gymnastics that we just did here. The people of Galilee. Jesus Christ went up to Galilee after the Passover feast. He did go down to Jerusalem for those other feasts, as was required in the law. But it seems as though he spent a good deal of his time in Galilee. The people of Galilee would have been very familiar with Jesus' healing power. And so now he has a very large crowd following him because he has healed many diseases. 
The second miracle he did in Galilee was the healing of the nobleman's son. No doubt that got around in Capernaum. People began to follow him. People with diseases began to come to him. He would gladly heal them of their diseases as he preached repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. More people began to follow him. And by this point in his ministry, the Passover feast nigh at hand, he has 5,000 men following him. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus, being upon a mountain, looked upon the great company and said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that we may eat? Now we do not know why it is he asked Philip this question in particular. We know a few things about Philip from the beginning of John, but not a lot about Philip. But we do know that Jesus asked Philip specifically, as the scriptures say, to prove him, to test him, to see what his response would be. Well, Philip's answer is in verse 7. 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. So, Philip mentions here that a great deal of money could go toward buying bread, but even if we had that kind of money, Jesus, we'd only be able to give them a very scant amount of bread each. We could not fill this group of people. That would take a great deal of money, Jesus. Jesus responds by telling his disciples to have the men sit down in the grass that surrounded the mountain where he was standing. Verses 11 through 13 describe a miracle of epic proportions. When I first wrote this, I put a miracle of epic portions, and I was going to say something about a nice little pun there, but I changed it to proportions, but I still had to mention it. I don't know why. So an ep- uh, it's a tremendous miracle, a tremendous miracle that we are about to witness. Jesus took the loaves and the fishes, that this little boy had had, that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says, oh, but this little boy here, this young lad, has five barley loaves and two fishes, but what is that amongst so many? Jesus says, have the people sit down. He gives thanks for them. He breaks the bread and he commands his disciples to distribute that among the crowd. Now, when everyone was present had been filled, and note the word, Note the word used there in verse 12. When they were filled. The Greek word there is not simply a word meaning everyone got some. It is a word meaning they had all eaten to the point where the the basket of bread came around and they said, no thank you. Where the fish came around and they said, I've had quite enough, thank you. I am full. So that's the word used there in the Greek. It is filled to completeness. When everyone had been filled to complete satisfaction, Jesus commanded that the remnants be taken up so that none had been wasted. And we see at the end of this miracle that 12 baskets of excess from the five barley loaves were collected. It doesn't say anything about the fish. We don't know if there was excess fish. We don't know what the case may be there. But it does say that as far as the barley loaves are concerned, 12 basketfuls of barley of excess were gleaned. Now consider with me the tremendous implications of Christ's actions here. Throughout history, hunger and food shortage have always been tremendous needs in large portions of the world. 
There has always been a need for food. There has always been hunger. In fact, Jesus Christ would mention in his ministry, the poor and the hungry you have always with you. Food is a strategic resource because everyone needs it to live. Now imagine with me the implications of a man who could take five barley loaves and two fishes and miraculously multiply it to feed 5,000 men to the full. That is very important to us as we, under, as we seek to understand verses 14 and 15. Notice what it says. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that, the world, that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. The people rightly perceived in verse 14 that this is the prophet that should come into the world. We've talked about this before. That prophet was a common title for the one who would come in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. In that verse, Moses said that the Lord would rise up a prophet like unto him that would have God's words in his mouth and would say everything that was in God's heart. So the people recognizing, waiting for this prophet, recognizing Jesus Christ as this prophet, said, this is that prophet that should come. So they rightly connected it, and they even rightly connected the appearance of this prophet to the person and work of the Messiah and Messiah's kingdom. So they said, this is Messiah, this is the one that should come, this is that prophet that should come, and their response was, let's make him a king. See, for all the dots that they had put together about him being that prophet, about that prophet being Messiah, about Messiah coming with a kingdom, they completely missed the point. And remember what we're talking about in this first point, that Jesus Christ's earthly miracles were a physical manifestation of a spiritual purpose. And the people missed the point. Jesus did not come preaching, make me a king for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, did he? Never throughout his ministry will you hear the words, Make me a king, for this kingdom is at hand. Jesus came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people were supposed to see the earthly miracles, recognize that the earthly miracles were a manifestation of God's spiritual, or Jesus Christ's spiritual authority and God's approval upon Jesus' message, and they were supposed to accept his spiritual authority message. But what the people saw instead was the earthly miracles. They wanted the earthly benefits of the kingdom, but they refused to meet the spiritual requirements necessary for the earthly blessings to be secured. They wanted the earthly blessings, but they didn't want the spiritual message. They wanted the benefits that God could bring to them materially, but they didn't want to humble themselves before God first of all. It's very reflective of a heart that we see even in culture today. The Galileans saw Christ's miracles. They saw Christ's power, but they missed Christ's purpose. They saw with their eyes, they interpreted Jesus' actions through their hearts of lust and pride instead of a heart of belief. Their thought was this. Imagine what we could do with a king like this. Imagine how we could overthrow Rome's oppression upon us if we had a king that could heal the sick and the lame 
and that could multiply food. Imagine a king that, after a great battle with Rome, could walk through his army, touch them all, and they're all healed. Imagine an army that didn't need to protect supply lines, because as long as they had a little bit of bread in their pocket, their king could break that bread and multiply it to the entire army, and the army could be well-fed, and the army could be completely healed, and we could take over, and we could take Israel back from Rome. That was what was going through their minds. And that is why Jesus Christ, when he saw that they wanted to make him a king, refused. That is why he had to get away. It was not because he did not come offering the kingdom, but it was because they were trying to make him a physical king without aligning themselves with his spiritual purpose. Does that make sense? Jesus saw this spirit of unbelief. He perceived that they forcibly wanted to anoint him king. And he left the scene. So we see first of all. Christ's earthly miracles. Were a physical manifestation of a spiritual purpose. Let's look second all in verses 16 through 21. That Christ's earthly authority was a physical manifestation. Of his spiritual authority. So Christ's earthly miracles. Were a, spiritual, were a physical manifestation of a spiritual purpose. Second Christ's earthly authority was a physical manifestation of his spiritual authority. Look with me at verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. The evening after feeding the multitudes, Jesus' disciples went down to the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, entered into a ship, and went in said ship toward the city of Capernaum. It was dark at this point. Jesus was not with them. And there arose while they were on the sea a terrible storm. The sea was tossing very violently. Now the scriptures tell us that these men began to row. We know from Matthew and from the synoptics that many of these men were sailors. They were fishermen They were very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They were familiar with the storms that would arise. They were familiar with the troubles. And they were well capable of handling a ship in the sea. So they began to row. And the scriptures tell us, excuse me, that they had gone 25 or 30 furlongs when they saw something they did not expect. Now, one furlong is about 220 yards or 660 feet. That's one furlong. So if they had gone 25 to 30 furlongs, now imagine a great tempestuous sea. Imagine the waves up and down. Imagine them rowing through this storm with terrible winds and terrible sea. And then recognize that 25 to 30 furlongs is approximately 3 to 3 and 3 quarter miles. That is a long way. That's a lot of rowing in very harsh seas. These men are exhausted. These men have been rowing for a very long time. 
And then the men see a man walking on this tempestuous sea toward the ship. Now, this put fear into them that even the sea had not done prior. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that they thought he was some sort of spirit, a ghost, an apparition. Jesus, according to verse 20, calms them, says, It is I, be not afraid. They willingly, gladly uh, receive him into the ship when they recognize him. And the scriptures say that at the moment that he was in the ship, the seas calmed, and in fact, they were immediately at their destination. They were immediately at Capernaum. Now, the synoptics give us much more information about this particular event. It's almost a side thought. It's almost a passing thought. And as we continue, we're going to see that, in fact, yes, it was a passing thought. See, this great miracle, while it reveals Christ's power in a very real way, is more a revelation of Christ's authority than it is of his power. The first miracle that we saw, the miracle of the feeding of the multitude, Jesus showed the disciples his power to create food that was previously not there. He took a little bit of food and he made it a lot of food. It revealed his creative power. This second miracle, the miracle on the Sea of Galilee, showed his disciples that his power uh, didn't just extend over that that which... Uh, it, it was not just creative power, but he also had power over that which he had already created. That the sea and that the winds obeyed his voice. That he was in ultimate control. The... Synoptics tell us that when Jesus Christ calmed the seas, that the disciples fell down and worshipped Jesus and said, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And this is what Jesus was attempting to show his disciples. He wasn't showing off. He was showing that his authority was over the wind, over the waves. And to those who would accept it, he was God. We saw in our first understanding, our first point, Christ's earthly miracles were a physical manifestation of a spiritual purpose. We see through this second miracle that Christ's earthly authority was intended to be a physical manifestation of his spiritual authority. The disciples were intended to see that first miracle and recognize that Jesus Christ had a spiritual purpose, that he wasn't just there to be made king. The disciples were supposed to see the second miracle and recognize that Jesus Christ had authority on earth and authority in heaven. This third and final point that we see this evening in verses 22 through 29, this tells us of our responsibility. That it is our responsibility as men to align ourselves with Christ's spiritual purpose. Look with me at verse 22. We'll read through verse 29. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereunto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh into the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. 
Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. We pick up in verse 22 with the day following the events of verses 1 through 21. So this is the day after the feeding of the multitude and the day after this great storm that Jesus calmed. The people had taken note that there was only one boat that had left from that area where they had been. And that boat contained Jesus' disciples, but not Jesus himself. They had seen other boats come to the area from the city of Siberius, Tiberius, excuse me, but they had not seen any boats leave. However, they knew that Jesus and his disciples were gone, so they got into boats of their own and they journeyed toward Capernaum looking for Jesus and his disciples. Now verse 25 indicates that the people did find Jesus and having found him, they asked him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? When did you get here? See, they're curious about when he came to Capernaum since he wasn't in the boat with his disciples and no other boat had left. Did he just run around the lake? How did he get there? Well, we know how he got there. Jesus, however, in typical fashion, sort of overlooks their question and strikes the heart of their intentions. Do you, do you see a parallel here? I have to make this point because this really excited me as I was reviewing for this again this afternoon. Do you remember this morning in Sunday school, we talked about Gideon? And when the angel of the Lord appeared unto Gideon and he said, Thou mighty man of valor, uh, I, you are, I'm choosing you to deliver the nation of Israel from the Midianites. The Midianites will be delivered into your hand. And, and, and Gideon asked when the angel of the Lord approached him, Well, if you're with us, if you are with me and with the nation of Israel, then why have we fallen into the hand of Midian? Why? Where's the God of miracles? Where's the God that brought us out of Egypt? And do you remember us mentioning this morning that the angel of the Lord never answered his question? That he moved right on past Gideon's question and struck to the heart of what Gideon needed to do? We see the exact same thing here. They say, Whence camest thou? Well, when did you get here? And Jesus completely overlooked their question and struck right at the point that needed to be made. We can see a continuity even in the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, uh, second person of the Trinity. We can see that continuity between the second person of the Trinity and Jesus Christ even now in his earthly ministry. And that excites me as we see how God oftentimes does this when he's dealing with men. Men ask him a question and it's not the right question. And so he strikes at their heart instead of answering their question directly. And so he doesn't respond to their question directly. See, he knew their hearts. He discerned their intentions. And this is where we need to make it clear that these 5,000 that were following Jesus were in fact just followers. They were not disciples. They were not believers. They were followers. Jesus knew their hearts and immediately he determined and discerned their intentions. He tells them that they didn't seek him because they saw the miracle, but they sought him because 
they were filled with food and they wanted more. His implication here is not that they didn't physically see the miracle. Have you ever read that and said, of course they saw the miracle. They were there that day. What does he mean they didn't see the miracle? Well, the implication is not that they didn't see it with their eyes. They were all recipients, but rather he is saying here, you didn't recognize the miracle. You didn't see it with your hearts. It didn't change your mind about me. It didn't cause you to repent. You recognized what I did, but you didn't believe the miracle that you saw. The miracle didn't cause them to recognize Jesus' authority. It simply caused them to want more food from him. So rather than respond to their question of when he came to Capernaum, he responds to this observation or with an observation of their intentions. He tells them in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus was standing before the multitude and he was preaching salvation through belief. Yet the people's exclusive focus was on their physical and material benefits through Jesus Christ's ministry. They were focused on the food. They were focused on the healing. They didn't even truly see His miracles. They didn't understand His authority. They just wanted to consume of the benefits of being around Jesus Christ. He was rebuking their focus more than He was rebuking their actual efforts here. And He tells them, instead of laboring for the temporal satisfactions of material gain, He calls upon them to seek out those things which are above. Paul would say it this way in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now what is Jesus not saying here? Jesus is not telling them that they need to labor for their salvation. This will become very clear in verses 28 and 29. Jesus is not telling them uh, not to put any effort toward their earthly obligations toward living. He's not telling them just to quit working, to quit laboring. He's simply contrasting their priorities. Their priorities were largely carnal instead of largely spiritual. What he is saying here is... What I, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 to understand what he's saying here. Please turn with me to Matthew 6. I wasn't going to have you turn, but let's have you turn. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 6, and, and his message in Matthew 6 is exactly what he's trying to get across to the believer, to the, to the followers here in, Matthew, or in John 6. Matthew 6, look with me in verse 19. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be over. Skip to verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Skip to verse 31. 
Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. See, this is the message that Jesus Christ has for them here in John 6. He's not telling them not to work, nor is he telling them to work for their salvation. He is calling upon them to work the work of God. The work of God is not earning salvation. The work of God, as we see in... uh, Let's continue in the passage. Then said they, verse 28, unto him, John 6, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? How is it that we can labor? You're telling us to labor not for, for meat that perisheth, but to labor uh, in, in spiritual things, in heavenly things, in that which endures unto eternal life. How can we work this work of God? And Jesus answers them very clearly here. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. To believe on Jesus Christ is to do the work of God unto salvation. That is what God asks of us in this life, that we would align our hearts with his heart, that we would align ourselves with Jesus Christ's spiritual purpose upon this earth by believing on his name. And that is the message. That is what these 29 verses are intended to teach us. All throughout John, we've been seeing that there are particular reasons why the evangelist John wrote what he wrote. Specific reasons why he wanted us to learn of Nicodemus, of the Samaritan woman, of the impotent man. And here in John 6, as we are recognizing the feeding of the the 5,000, as we see the miracle on the Sea of Galilee, what it is intended to teach us is that we ought to align ourselves with that Christ's purpose was spiritual and that it is our responsibility as men and women and children to align ourselves with Christ's spiritual purpose. And so as we close, we recognize that if our lives are devoted to seeking God on our terms, if our lives are devoted to seeking God for our own benefit, even if we say it's in the name of Jesus or in the name of religion, if we are seeking God for our own benefit, we're missing the point. We're missing God's purpose. Jesus Work was to do the will of the Father. Our work is to believe on Jesus' name. And so I ask you as we apply this evening, as we close, are you aligned with God's spiritual purpose? Now, if you are in this room and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's only one thing that you can do to align yourself with Jesus Christ's spiritual purpose. And that is found in verse 29. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. To believe on the name of Jesus Christ unto salvation is the only alignment that the unbeliever can have with God. Most of us in this room, however, are believers in Jesus Christ. And for us, my question is this. As we read those verses in Matthew chapter 6, are your affections aligned with Jesus Christ's spiritual purpose on this earth? Are your affections set on things above or are they set on things upon this earth? Are your your priorities, is that which you crave, is that which you give your time 
and your money and your effort to all align with the things on this earth, that which is just going to pass away, those things that, as we recall from the message this morning, you can't take with you anyway? Or are your affections, is your desire, your priority, your time, your effort, your money, is it diverted toward those things which are eternal in scope? That's the lesson from the beginning of John chapter 6. That is the intent of this passage. That we would recognize that Christ's purpose was spiritual, not physical. And that we as God's people, or we even as unbelievers, would see it and align ourselves with Christ's spiritual purpose. Let's pray together.